The Jesus People Movement served as a bridge between sort of the youth revolution and all the turmoil and changes that were coming along, a bridge between church and the culture, you know, because of the existence of the Jesus People. Today on First Person, a look back at the Jesus people in America. Hello, I'm Wayne Shepherd. My guest will be Larry Eskridge, the author of God's Forever Family. I'm glad you've joined us today for what I believe is a largely untold story in American life. I'll introduce you to today's guest and topic in just a moment. First, a reminder that each and every interview on this program is available online for listening at any time at firstpersoninterview.com. You can choose from a long list of guests and hear their story unfold through our conversation. And if you would prefer to download the interview to your computer or MP3 device, the podcast is available on iTunes. Just search for First Person Interview with Wayne Shepherd. Also, we can be found at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, Larry Eskridge is a friend I've known for many years. He serves on the staff of the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals at Wheaton College. Now he's also the author of a book which tells the story of the Jesus People Movement in America, a detailed account of what took place among America's youth in the 60s and 70s. Larry joined me recently here in the studio, and I began by asking him about the study group he's a part of. Well, the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals is an organization that was founded back in the early 80s. And uh, we attempt to study American evangelicals, uh, the history, uh, both for an academic audience in the the university setting, and uh, we try to be able to serve as mediators with the press to help uh, explain uh, evangelicals to them, and uh, you know, to uh, help them understand the history. And we also attempt to uh, you know help uh, folks uh, in the churches to better understand their heritage as well, and that's our mission. It really is incredibly important to understand that, and not just for the secular world, so to speak, but for even believers in churches to understand where we came from and why we got where we are and what we learned along the way. Yeah, and we find there's really kind of a dearth of understanding uh, about sort of recent American church history, the background even of the evangelical movement. Uh, A lot of folks in the pews may not be terribly well-versed, say, on early church history, but we find that uh, uh, it's there's even more of a gap when it gets to the later periods, you mm-hmm. know, from the last couple centuries, which is really kind of their their home in yeah, a lot of ways, right, their church right. home, their uh, tradition. And uh, so we're making some attempts to try to remedy that. Yeah, it's interesting to see how our theology uh, has developed and right. doctrines mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. developed over the last a couple of centuries, mm-hmm. even as recent as that is in the in the scope of history. Right, to understand who some of the important folks are and uh, some of the uh, the networks and traditions that uh, sort of uh, move together and helps you to understand some of the links and yeah. how folks uh, array themselves. You know? Well, Larry, here on First Person, we normally tell a person's story. Uh, today we're going to tell a movement's story, and uh, you you are the dedicated spokesperson. <laughs> no, I don't know that they'll claim that. <laughs> For the Jesus People Movement, because you've written God's Forever Family, the Jesus People Movement in America. So I want to talk about this, and it was a fun book to read, as I've told you before, because 
of course, I lived during this time mm-hmm. period. And, yeah. and whenever you read about a time period you lived uh, through, it, it really makes it uh, interesting because many of the names you'll recognize and mm-hmm. some of them are still with us, actually. So yes. give me a starting point on this. Um, late 60s? Uh, yeah, probably the uh, mid to late 60s. Uh, you know, 1967 is probably a good starting point. Um, the movement begins, actually, the first recognizable uh, uh Embodiment of the movement really is in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco yeah. during the height of the Summer of Love, mm-hmm. the famous, uh, you know, gathering of all these uh, hippies to San Francisco. Flowers in the hair. Flowers in the hair. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, a lot of runaways coming to San Francisco that kind of precipitates a crisis within the city because they are dealing with tens of thousands of young people who have nowhere to go, uh, shortages of food. And it's within the response to that that uh, you begin to see folks step up uh, to uh, try to evangelize some of these folks that are coming to San Francisco. So you can trace it back to a specific place. Can you trace it back to specific people? Yeah, the, this particular group of people surrounding a fellow by the name of Ted Wise and his wife Elizabeth, um, who really came from, I guess you would call a beatnik background from the 50s and earlier 60s in San Francisco. They began to uh, uh, attend church at a Baptist church up in Marin County across the bridge. And um, eventually he began to pull in some of his friends and associates, kind of this beatnik bohemian yeah. so this is a <laughs> proto-hippies. Tra- you know? This is a traditional church, right. and suddenly this group shows up. Yeah. And that, that makes it made for an interesting dynamics, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> sure did. It was a little <laughs> uncomfortable. But uh, as the, the thing began to develop and, uh, you know, the hippies were coming into San Francisco and that movement was developing, uh, this Baptist pastor, a fellow by the name of John McDonald, and some of the other pastors there in San Francisco realized uh, almost uh, that they were dealing with a uh, a cross-cultural mission sort of movement and that they were utterly unequipped to reach these young people who were in the counterculture. And uh, so they decided to begin backing this small group of people in San Francisco. Now, that was a bold move. I mean, uh, you yeah. have to consider the times. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is during the whole uh, Vietnam War era and all the protests and all the hippie movement and all that. And yet yep. these uh, these churches band together and say, we're going to reach out. Yep. Time of great division. And, you know, if you were to sort of map these folks on a continuum, you'd say, well, these people in these you know, conservative Baptist churches in San Francisco were certainly on the other side of the cultural barricades, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sort of the Nixon, you know, uh, silent majority sort of a setup. And um, it was not necessarily popular with the folks in the churches, you know. Yeah. So what was step two along the way to the Jesus movement? Well, it uh, begins to sort of erupt spontaneously, you know, because you've got the counterculture out there all across the country, and then you've also got, you know, evangelical churches um, side by side. So it begins to pop up in various cities all over the place. But uh, the real uh, center of the movement becomes Southern California, mm. where you have a number of individuals like Arthur Blessett uh, with his his place, uh, kind of a coffee house uh, ministry center yeah. on Sunset Strip. He's still with us, right? Yeah, uh, he's the guy. I talked folks, to him a couple years ago. Yeah, most folks probably know him for his cross ministry. He's yes. been walking around the world since yes. the early 70s. With That's a cross. what I talked to him about, right? Yep. And uh, you had other folks like uh, there's a Presbyterian youth pastor, Donald Williams, uh, at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And uh, the most important center that 
cropped up was uh, down in Orange County, a little church called Calvary Chapel. <laughs> little country church. <laughs> little country church that began to attract these hippies and uh, sort of the beach bum element, as they would have been called at that point. But again, that was a traditional church. Oh, okay, very Pastored by Chuck yep. Smith. Yeah. And there was a huge sort of a moment in the church's history where they had just built a new sank, a new building, you know, uh, housed about 300 folks, new carpet, new pews, padded pews, the whole nine yards. And the folks put up a sign that basically said, no bare feet, you know, uh, <laughs> no blue jeans in the sanctuary, that sort of thing. And uh, Chuck Smith, maybe one of the pivotal moments in that church and that movement, took that sign down and, you know, kind of read the riot act to the folks in the church, said, listen, if we, if that is standing in our way, we'll put in folding chairs and we'll just go with that. But, you know, this this can't fly. And the people, you know, kind of saw the light. Uh, a few people left, but, yeah. you know, and so Calvary once Chapel again, and and for lack of a better word, the establishment church right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. uh, reached out right. and, and adapted yeah. uh, to this young generation that was coming along. One, do church a little differently. Right. And, you know, a place like Calvary Chapel did stand out and it was sort of like, Okay, what is going on at this place that yeah. seems to be growing by leaps and yeah. bounds and attracting all these folks? And, you know, a lot of the other churches are looking at it sort of quizzically and uh, trying to understand what's going on there. Well, this is where the music of that uh, Jesus People movement really found its legs, too, was during this time at Calvary Chapel. It was, wasn't that where, I mean, I know Love Song came about, uh, the group mm-hmm. and, the, and that album that was a. Uh, you know, seminal album of its day. Right. Uh, they just had a stable of uh, people who were either coming out of that particular church or were attracted to it and began ministering through music there. And um, uh, it became very influential, the uh, uh, sort of the scripture praise songs that mm-hmm. were very popular there. Chuck Smith was very affirmative in terms of kind of a pop, easy folk sound. It wasn't very rock and roll. And that's one of the differences as you begin to listen to the music from coming from other parts of the country. Yeah. Calvary Chapel was a little tamer. Yeah, well, uh, we listen to it now things. and it sounds very tame, right. doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, for, it was still revolutionary at that particular time. But these praise choruses, these scripture songs that the folks were doing there really began to move out with the kids who would visit the church and with the musical groups as they would visit other churches and coffee houses. And uh, eventually that began to spread across the country and, you know, became quite mm-hmm. a powerful force within the church and leads down to today, you know, the uh, presence of all these sorts of praise and worship music uh, yeah. choruses within the churches. Yeah, well, the Maranatha music phenomenon right. of the 70s exactly. and 80s and probably even later really mm-hmm. uh, was birthed there right. at, at that time. People like Tommy Coombs and mm-hmm. and all, so... Yeah. And joined by, you know, later on, the Vineyard and its uh, Mm -hmm. musical expressions, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. uh, flowed out of that uh, same thing as well. Yeah. So Calvary Chapel was a a pivotal place in Southern California. But then the movement began to move around the country, right? Yeah. As I mentioned, it uh, seemed to pop up spontaneously, you know, in uh, Detroit, Milwaukee, Seattle, um, you know, Atlanta, just all sorts of different cities, all these sort of outreaches, um, you know, out-of-the-way places, Wichita, (laughs) Uh, these sorts of things as well. And um, uh, it was greatly helped uh, by uh, a growing tide of publicity. Um, Early on, there's not much coverage of this thing. In fact, the first real coverage of it came in early 68 in Christian Life magazine, which was based in Wheaton, Illinois. 
a very conservative publication, and it triggered outrage amongst a number of the readers who were just appalled uh, about you know the group in San Francisco and about what they were doing, and that uh, Christian Life magazine had even bothered to write an article about them. But by about 1970, 1971, the publicity began to uh, pick up, and it became much more positive. Um, the uh, evangelical press began to write articles about this, and even the secular press began to pay coverage to it, pay attention to it, and was actually rather charmed by this movement um, at the time. Um, you know, given all the youth turmoil that had been going on for several years here, it was actually something of a positive story. And uh, so, you know, by the time you get to July 1971, the Jesus people are on the cover of Time magazine to show you just the sort of impact that it was having in the publicity. Uh, Billy Graham was one of the people who was particularly important in that uh, publicity as well. We'll continue to talk with Larry Eskridge about the Jesus People Movement in America coming up today on First Person. One of the ministries I've been able to spend time with recently is Operation Mobilization. OM's mission is to mobilize people to share the knowledge of Jesus and His love with every generation in every nation. And one of the ways they accomplish that goal is through their ship ministry. And within the next few weeks on First Person, you'll learn more about this exciting aspect of Operation Mobilization. There's more information when you click the OM link at firstpersoninterview.com. That's firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person today is Larry Eskridge. Larry is with the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals at Wheaton College and the author of God's Forever Family, The Jesus People Movement in America. And I I read the whole book and really loved reading this book. I don't read every book that comes to my office, Larry, or even every every book for the authors that I interview because there just isn't time. But this one really uh, got my attention, and I I loved reading it, and hope our listeners will get a copy of it as well. Uh, A moment ago, you mentioned Dr. Billy Graham. Uh, When did he become aware of this Jesus People movement? Well, you know how folks tell the story uh, for these things, so it's always, uh, you know, sort of a a set thing, Uh, but... Uh, New Year's Day, the Rose Bowl Parade, was where he claims that he first really encountered this thing and became aware of it. They're having this parade going down the street, you know, and Graham and um, his wife Ruth were the co-marshals for this thing. So they're riding in the convertible. They're riding in the convertible doing the parade thing. And these Jesus people types are, you know, in the parade because it's Billy Graham, right? You know, they're there to show up and support Billy. And they begin flashing the one-way symbol, which uh, folks uh, of our age may remember was an upraised uh, index finger pointing towards the sky. And Billy was kind of mystified at this. And, well, let's return that back to you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the folks were sort of, sort of shouting, one-way, Jesus, that, and Billy, well, this is interesting. And uh, it really made an impression on him. And uh, soon thereafter... Uh, uh, they began to meet, and apparently in discussing what they were going to do with their crusades for 1971, they decided to move the Jesus people front and center to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of his sermons dealt with youth that year. I remember uh, the uh, staging graphics uh, would become quite psychedelic in their exactly. colors. And uh, Right, at Oakland, you know, they had a giant you know, sort of psychedelic-looking uh, one-way symbol behind the, the platform. and. Yeah. 
you know, they would have some of the more youthful musical performers right. uh, included. And uh, But it wasn't just Dr. Graham. It was organizations like uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, right. now, now called Crew, of course. But mm-hmm. um, Bill Bright uh, was paying attention, too. Yeah, they got behind this movement. Uh, they were going to hold a... Uh, Youth Evangelism Conference in Dallas in the summer of 1972, but about a year out, they really began to get the inkling that the sort of folks they were attracting were different than the audience they had intended, and it really did morph into sort of a Jesus festival, and uh, you know, it came full with a Jesus music festival. So, 80,000 kids show up for this meeting at the Cotton Bowl Mm -hmm. and 180,000 estimated for this music festival on a very hot uh, Saturday uh, in uh, Dallas. And uh, it really did become kind of an advertisement for the Jesus movement. Yeah. I had forgotten until I read your book that a very young Paul Eshelman was Mm -hmm. put in charge of that. Paul Eshelman, of course, uh, through the years has been responsible for the whole Jesus film Mm -hmm. around the world, which is an amazing ministry. But that was his uh, one of his early assignments with Campus Crusade. This was was kind of his baptism by fire. Explo 72. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, the media is paying attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mainstream organizations like uh, Billy Graham and Campus Crusade are paying attention. The movement is starting to pop up in the Midwest and other places around the country in, 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 the form, yeah. in the form of coffee houses. Yeah, the movement really begins to change, uh, particularly because in the early urban pockets of the movement across the country and in Southern California, we were de- really dealing with a uh, group of folks who are, you know, really kind of hardcore counterculture coming out of the drug culture. Well, that was still going on elsewhere uh, as the movement was uh, spreading and gaining publicity. But uh, uh, you really began to attract a large cohort of high school and young college-age kids who were coming out of the conservative churches and who identified with this Jesus People movement, you know, uh, folks for whom the allure of popular music Mm -hmm. and popular culture was very strong and who felt maybe kind of a little marginal by being part of their conservative church culture, they sort of grabbed onto this Jesus people identity. And the coffee houses became a way for folks to kind of get the Jesus movement in their towns. So it was a place where you'd come in, have a cup of coffee or a bottle of pop and uh, sit around and maybe have Bible studies, bring your friends to be evangelized. It was a hangout place. Yeah, it was a hangout place. Mm-hmm. Music artists would come on, you know, Friday and Saturday nights. And you really began to get almost like, uh, I describe it as kind of like the old vaudeville circuit, where you would have these traveling Jesus musicians and bands who would hit these different coffee houses. <laughs> and it really became a way for sort of spreading the message as well. Hey, did you hear who's coming tonight? To, exactly, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah, let, let's get together. So it's pretty amazing that it uh, it took that form, and uh, it really impacted a lot. I mean, I, I have friends who have really traced their spiritual roots back to those coffee house days. Right. It became really a center for these folks. And, you know, you may hear, you know, you may have heard about uh, the faraway movement in Southern California or about this place, Calvary Chapel, that was with this huge church. But for most folks, you know, kind of the the Jesus people movement became the people who you were involved with locally, and you established these networks with other local coffee houses, and uh, it really became the center of the movement, particularly in the Midwest after about 
1971. Well, one of the issues, as with all Protestantism, is the fact that there is no central authority. You know, right. there is no one right. voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did uh, how did matters of theology and doctrine get handled by these various groups around the country? Well, it became pretty problematic, as you can imagine, because everybody you know has their Bibles, and these folks were oftentimes they were out fundamentalisting the fundamentalists mm-hmm. uh, by taking very literal readings of Scripture. So. Uh, it did become an issue. Some groups began to move towards authoritarian sorts of structures. And so there was a really concerted attempt to try to bring some sort of uh, uh, uniformity to this and to take attempts to disciple these people yeah. and to, to try to get them on the, the beam with uh, you know, a sound theology. And more than a few were involved in communal living. Right. Yeah, that still became, you know, it was still, um, particularly within the context of American society in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, you know, uh, the nuclear family uh, was the center and, you know, people living in their little suburban tract homes and that sort of thing. That was sort of the standard way that they envisioned that. So the Jesus people did still stand out by the fact that uh, even after the coffee house movement begins, you still have communal houses and a lot of your most committed members of some of these groups uh, spend at least part of their time in some sort of a communal arrangement, you know, sort of taking their cue from the second chapter of Acts, uh, the Bible, not mm. the group, <laughs> and, uh, and that uh, this was, uh, the, you know, the template that they were supposed to follow. Yeah. Well, uh, after doing all this research, and by the way, you had a lot of uh, questionnaires that went out, and right. I don't know how many people were interviewed for your book. I don't know if you know how many people you interviewed for this book, but... Yeah, probably 80 or 90 okay. people who were, you know, kind of big players okay. in the movement. Yeah. Let's talk for a few minutes about some of the conclusions about all this. What what did we, uh, what, what advantage... Uh, to the kingdom because of the Jesus People Movement? Well, um, you know, you, it's one of these questions that a lot of people are still debating in terms of obviously at one level this was a very important um, aspect of that particular period of time in the sense that uh, the Jesus People Movement served as a bridge between sort of the youth revolution and all the turmoil and changes that were coming along, a bridge between church and the culture. You know, so that at one level, you have a lot of folks who are involved in the counterculture who are migrating to the church. And a lot of folks, you know, young people within the church who are able to kind of tiptoe that line a little easier, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the existence of the Jesus people. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the uh, questions that the Jesus people uh, bring up was the fact that they were very comfortable with popular culture. And um, that is a question that is still sort of under yeah. discussion within right. the church these days. A lot has changed, but right. a lot has not. Right. You know, the the previous uh, you know thing that they were reacting against was the fact that popular culture was kept at arm's length. You know, worldly entertainments, that sort of idea was something that was really very negative. And the Jesus People Movement really is the first uh, you know, outcropping of uh, a move against that that begins to say, you know, well, there is a place for sort of worldly, you know, <laughs> or, you know, entertainment and this more popular forms of music and expression. And, uh, of course, that eventually became uh, much more prevalent within the evangelical subculture. And I think as part of that was this whole idea that there was a relaxation of uh, the idea that we can be comfortable with a youth culture, you know, maybe a baptized youth culture, mm-hmm. one that is maybe not as extreme as what, but, you know, in, in its f- basic form, 
you know, it, we can be comfortable with it in sort of a Christian setting. And so the Jesus people really wear that for the church in a lot of ways. Larry's book is a fascinating look at a brief period in American evangelical history, a story now comprehensively told in this book, God's Forever Family, published by Oxford University Press. We'll place additional information about the book and its author on our webpage, firstpersoninterview.com. Also, you'll find a schedule of upcoming guests and topics there. In the weeks ahead, we have some people I really want you to meet as they tell their story of God at work in their life. Next week, we'll meet musician Tommy Coombs, who started out in the Jesus People Movement musical world himself with Love Song and then went on to help form Maranatha Music and much more. That's next week. You can also leave your comments for us on Facebook. We're found at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening to First Person.